Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. As we dive into our Revelation study, please remember the word Revelation means to unveil, to pull the curtain back. Pretty good metaphor, right? To help us see the truth of what's happening right now in the present day, as well as to help see the truth of what's going to happen in the future. That's the word revelation, to unveil a future unseen reality and a present unseen reality so that we actually don't spend our time, our treasure, our talent, our our, our emotions, and our hearts. And it's got to start with how we think rightly. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 2. Here's my summary statement for today. Jesus is fighting for our minds. That's what he's fighting for. In fact, the way that we think drives the way that we live. I love the way A.W. Tozer says that he says the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And I'm convinced that Satan has put a veil between us and truth. And that's a problem for us because it's changing everything in this world. And so right now, as we open up the word, please understand that I think this is still true. And yet today we live in Satan's postmodern, pluralistic playground, which we call earth. And we must remember, church, who the truth is. Sometimes we think about what is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way. And I am what? Life. I'm the good life. And here's my fear that way too many of us are painting nails on a rubber hand. And we think that's called life. We're spending our life We're fretting and freaking out over things that aren't actually important. But that's part of what Satan has done is he wants us to be pursuing things that don't matter. We're literally fighting for things that are fake, like freedom, (laughs) like like, like my joy apart from Jesus. We're having these fights for things that on one level are not the main thing. All the while, Satan is poking and prodding and manipulating our head, our hands, our heart, our flesh itself, and we don't even have a clue what's happening to us. Amen? That's my fear, that as we think about this throne of our heart, that we've put things on the throne of our heart that honestly, practically speaking, are like a rubber arm. They're things that don't matter. Satan has us fully distracted and we've missed the point. Jesus, though, as king, he sits on the true throne, not only of our hearts, but of eternity and of the cosmos, and he fights for our mind. There's a fight going on right now, and he's going to call us all to repent and to remember that he alone is the truth. And the truth will what, church? Like, this is good news. If we've been in bondage, if we've had blankets put over our eyes, scales on our eyes, metaphorically speaking, there is good news that he has come to meet with us. In fact, he writes this letter right now, and he writes it to the church so that we might actually see, that the the veil might be removed, that it'll pull back the curtain, and so that we can see the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now, this is important because I think the truth of the text today is so close to the truth of the text then. And so I think it's going to be important as we open up the word on one level, I'm terrified to preach this sermon. On another level, I can't wait because when we're terrified, I think Jesus shows up. In fact, we're going to talk about the throne room of of grace. We're going to be looking at the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, the week after Easter. And I love this, that we as believers can approach the throne room with confidence. Why? Because he set us free. But that, that's the joy. In fact, if you remember in Revelation chapter 1, if you're a guest with us and you're picking up on a study that we're already like six or seven weeks in, in Revelation 1, here's what we saw. We see the big idea of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Amen? 
So we live in this world where there really are curtains, where there really are people fighting against the truth of the gospel, and yet we know that in the end Jesus will win. Here's who Jesus is in chapter one. We're in chapter two today, but here he is in chapter one. Jesus reveals himself in the middle with his churches. He tells the big idea that he's gonna win and that he's with his churches. He's clothed in a robe and a golden girdle, and he's got this white head, hair like wool and snow, eyes like fire and flames, feet made of bronze to a furnace. His face is shining like the noon of day. In his right hand, he holds seven stars, and out of his mouth comes this double-edged sword, and he tells the church, church, I love you. Church, you're living in this world of brokenness and in a dark world, but the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus comes into the world and he shows up that Jesus wins. And he gives seven messages over and over and over again to these seven different types of churches. And so we're gonna look at church number three today. And as we look at this church, I'm gonna challenge us as a church, say, what can we learn from them? Again, now the pattern for all seven churches is primarily the same. It's God who's the author, Jesus himself. He writes to the angel of the church. We're gonna learn about the context. He says, guys, you're doing good here, but this I have against you. Specifically in in the church today, what we're gonna see is that Ephesus, church one, resisted false teaching. Smyrna, church two, endured persecution. Pergamum, which is who we're looking at today, has both assaults on them. And we're going to see a church that withstood the persecution, but they bought the lies of false truth. They bought the lies of not thinking rightly. The curtain had blinded them from the truth. And so that's what we're going to see in the text today. And Jesus is going to call them to repent, just like he does every time. He loves us enough to call us to himself. And he says, if you repent, I will forgive. Repentance is not a word that we have to avoid, church. We love the word repentance of vintage. Why? Because if we repent, he's faithful and just to forgive And who needs forgiveness today? Anybody else or just me? This is the two-hand part of the service, right? Like, we're saints that still struggle with sin. We're here today because we don't have it all together, and we're here to worship the only one that does in radiance and glory. And so when we live in a dark world, it's easy to freak out. Church, don't freak out. God is in control. Amen? And he's wooing, and he's calling the church to repent. He says, if you do, you will be more than a conqueror. I win. Now the question is, will we be faithful? Now, here's what I want us to remember in the gospel. We talk about the gospel almost every Sunday at at the church. We've been using these circles. I love to draw pictures. They help me remember things. This circle represents the empire. None of us were born Christian. We were born in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. We're actually born into sin. And so all of these shapes and even these lines matter. Anybody know what this line stands for? It stands for your birth. You were born. Congratulations, right? We all were. That's why we're here. This is your birth born into the empire, into brokenness, into sin. But God comes to us. Uh, our sin, it does separate us from him, and yet he comes to us to make a way when there was no other way. And so this is a spiritual number line, and it just talks about our journey, ideally our journey with Jesus, born into sin, that there was a metaphorical throne on every one of our hearts, that in the garden, God designed us to be in relationship, but in our sin, we rejected him. We knocked him off the throne of our hearts, and we put things like fake rubber arms. I mean, that's what sin is. It's settling for things that don't matter. Sin is idolatry. Sin is not trusting that God's better is better. But when we come to faith, we get off the throne of our heart and we step out of the empire into our true residency. And what does this circle represent? Anybody know? The kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. That, that again, we're getting off the throne. We're saying, Jesus, you're the one that sits on the throne of my heart. You're the king of my heart. You're the king of my life. And so this is this journey we're on. Now, what about this line right here? Anybody know what the arrow in this line represents? Joy in Jesus. That's how you know what sits on the throne of your heart. What makes you happy? What makes you sad? What causes you pain? That might be something that you give value to. 
That that's what we're looking at today as we leave the empire of this world. Now, we're stuck here, right? Jesus doesn't just save us from the world. He sends us to the world. And so we're stuck as a kingdom citizen that's also living in the empire. Now, when that happens, we experience something. We call it pressure. That was last week's text. Apart from Christ, the pressure of this world will do what to us? It'll crush us. Philipsis is a word that talks about the pressure when the empire and the kingdom collide in the middle. And so that's what we're seeing. All of these churches, they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with Philipsis, all three of the churches so far, and the next four as well, where they're still living in the empire because they're still humans. They're still residents of this world, but they're actually residents of heaven. And so there's this, this con- conflict that takes place in your and my heart. Church, that should be true for every one of us. If we're not experiencing a conflict in our heart, then maybe we're still living in the empire. Does that make sense? We can't live in the kingdom of God and still live as residents. Sorry, in fact, what we say at Vintage Grace is that's called one-cheek faith, right? You try to share the throne of your heart with someone or something else, and Jesus says, no, this is my throne, this is my seat, it's got vacancy for one. And so this is where we've been the last couple of weeks, building now to this week's text. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 12. Here's what the text says. And to the angel of the church in Capernaum, write these things, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also have some of you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you, and we praise you that as we live in this tension of kingdom-meeting empire, that we know the final score that we know that you win, Jesus, that you have on some level removed the curtain for us to see you clearly. And so, Spirit, right now, I ask that you would speak clearly to us, that you would show us who you are, Jesus, that, Jesus, you would make us more like you through the work of you, Spirit, as we live in this tension of kingdom-meeting empire. God, you love this world. We thank you for loving us. Would you speak to us for your glory, we pray. And everybody said, amen. So we're gonna zoom in on the text. We have a lot to cover. One of my favorite titles of Jesus is the Prince of what? peace. Now, does Jesus promise us peace as Christians? Yeah, specifically vertical peace, that our sin waged war in our flesh and that he made a way to conquer sin. It's called trusting and treasuring him. It's called repenting of our sin, off the throne of our heart. Jesus gives us vertical peace, but does Jesus ever really promise us horizontal peace? Not really. In fact, what's he tell his disciples? Follow me, and what's the world going to do to you? They're going to hate you. In fact, we're following Jesus. Where is Jesus going? Well, ultimately, he's going to the cross. So he says, follow me. Pursue me. It is for your good. It's going to be better. But I love this title, Prince of Peace. It's important that we recognize as there's chaos in the world that Jesus wins, that we have eternal peace. That's what gives us peace in the midst of darkness. And that's the truth of the matter. He is the Prince of Peace. And yet, if you just read the text with me, does it feel very peaceful? It kind of feels a little war-driven, right? He's the prince of peace, but he shows up and the sword's coming out of his mouth. 
This is the author. This is Jesus himself, full of glory. And this is the image that he gives to John. He says, the words of him, Jesus, who has this sharp two-edged sword. We must keep chapter one in front of us as we're reading chapter two and three. We must remember who Jesus is, who he is right now in his full picture. He is the voice of truth. And yet he is willing to fight. And so again, we must live in this tension right now that he's the prince of peace, but he's willing to fight for what matters most. Is he gonna fight for a rubber arm? No, it's fake but he's gonna fight for your heart. He's gonna fight for the throne of your heart and he's gonna start with your head because the way that we think drives what we feel and ultimately what we do. There's a battle for our mind. And I love that he's writing this. This is the description that he gives to John specifically of the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was one of the only places in the Roman Empire, we gotta remember their town, where they are, one of the only places in the Roman Empire that actually practiced capital punishment. I think that's part of why this is the description Jesus gives to this church. He says, I'm the only one that has the power of life and of death. Now, we got to remember a little bit about what Pergamum is, because last time I checked, you don't live there, right? And so let's go back a few thousand years, first century, Christianity, Roman Empire, what's taking place in Pergamum? He says this, and the angel of the church wrote to Pergamum, the words of him who has this sharp two-edged sword. Pergamum is where we get the word parchment. The reason being is that they had a massive library. Ever been in a room where you're just like, everyone's so smart here because they like read these books, right? 200,000 scrolls, they believe, were in the libraries of Pergamum. Again, this was a place of philosophers, of thinkers, a wealth of knowledge, a school of thought. Not only was it a wise place, this is also the place that Pliny the Elder, one of the most famous Roman historians, said that Pergamum is the most famous place in Asia, It was a rival. It was actually the capital before Ephesus took it over. It was the capital of the Asian province. It was built on a huge hill with lots of temples. They built the first temple to Augustus. And so again, they not only had temples of Roman gods, but they also had temples to Caesar and temples to other people. So it was a place of political, of religious thought. It was also a place of medicinal thought. In fact, one of the temples that was there was from Asclepius, which was a symbol of serpent. Maybe you've seen it like on hospitals. You see the the snake that's wrapped around a rod. And so again, that would be the symbol of the Roman god of Asclepius who believed in healing. In fact, there were lots of temples to Asclepius. And what that happened is that people would travel from all over and they'd want to go to these temples. And guess who lived in the temples? Snakes. That's where the serpent comes from. And here's what they believed. If you could travel from all over and get to one of these temples, you would want to fall asleep in the temple with the hope that a snake would come and touch you. Who has that hope? Anybody else? Who likes snakes? I'm just curious. One person. The rest, that's a problem. Again, we're going to remove the curtain for this gal today, right? And so here was the hope for Asclepius is that as you were sick, you were sleeping in the temple, the snake would brush you. And if the snake touched you while you were sleeping, guess what happened to you? You would be healed. Now, does anybody else think that that's funny or just me? And wrong, right? But again, we got to be careful because it's no different than the video that we just watched. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's not real. Guys, I believe Satan is blinding us. That he's blinding us then and he's blinding us now too. And so that's what's taking place in Pergamum. They have this cultural context of political worship with Caesar, of medicinal worship. They also had religious worship. In fact, one of their most famous temples was a temple built to Zeus. It was 800 feet above Main Street. So just picture town center for a moment. Your EDH town center. 
You just left the temple. It's this thousand foot acropolis. You just left the top of the hillside. You came down, you oversaw this whole region of, of wealth of knowledge, of wealth of finances, the capital of the region. You, you passed by Asclepius's temple and then you walked by Zeus's temple. 800 feet above town center. In fact, I really believe literally that there was a shadow that was cast from Zeus's temple all over Main Street. You could not walk down Main Street and not think about snakes and Zeus. This was the literal and metaphorical shadow that the church was birthed in in Capernaum. So we have to look at this at Pergamum specifically. This is the context of Main Street. This is the shadows that people are living in. Does that sound familiar to anybody else that we live in a world today that I don't think is that far different? Like, yeah, only one of us worship snakes still, but still, we live in a world that is confused, that's looking for hope, that's looking for healing, that's looking for joy, I believe, in all the wrong places. And it's to this church that Jesus says this. He says, I know where you dwell. I know Main Street. I know the shadows that are cast. I know as you walk church, the tension that you feel, the thalipsis that takes place as you leave the empire and walk in the kingdom. Because here's the deal. I haven't saved you and taken you out of the empire. I've left you there, but I'm with you. I haven't left you alone. My spirit is in you. I'm with you and I am for you. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now we talked about Satan last week. I don't want you to picture this red-headed balloon face with two horns coming out of it. It doesn't have a pitchfork. What does the word Satan mean? Does anybody remember? It's on the screen in yellow. I got you some help there. What's Satan mean? Accuser. He's so smart. Accuser, liar, deceiver. You think this will make you happy. You think this is important. You think this rubber arm is what it's all about. That's the, the temple that we're talking about here. It's not a literal temple of Satan. It's not a literal throne of Satan. It's the fact that Satan has crept into the throne of all the people's hearts that he's the one that resides there even through themselves. And so here's what he says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I don't miss this. Does anybody recognize that of all like the, the war and temple scenes nowadays, they've all gotten really dark. Have you noticed that? Think of all the Marvel movies. Like what are the temple scenes like nowadays? They're dark. I think it's a sign of our times that we live in a world right now that is dark. I believe very similar to Pergamum. And so here's what the church is stepping into. The text goes on, it says this, and yet church of Pergamum, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells, probably killed in the, the place where people would have seen at the edge of town center. That's where the persecution, that's where martyrdom would have taken place. He says, I know where you live. I know the lies. I know the deceits, but praise God, you have not given up. Now, Antipas is kind of a famous name. It's not a Jewish name. In fact, maybe you know the name because you know Herod the Great. His son was named Herod Antipas. Now again, I don't know about you, but when I name kids, it's only happened three times in my life, but typically I name them after someone or something that I care about. This is a Jewish name that not only doesn't care about Christ, but was probably antichrist. Herod was not a fan of Jesus. And so the odds are that this was a person that came to faith out of a yet-to-believe family. Not a Jewish family, a yet-to-believe family. That's why his name is Antipas. And here's what he says. You left the empire. Now you're living in the kingdom. There's this conversion of Philipsis that takes place. And what happens to Antipas? He dies. He dies. But as believers, we know that death is not an enemy, but a gateway to glory. And so he says, be like Antipas. Antipas was my fellow and faithful witness. In fact, that's a title that we see used of Jesus in chapter 1 and chapter 3 in Revelation. It's a title that says, this is your call, church. Your call is to be faithful, to follow Jesus. But what if following Jesus means I'm gonna die? Well, guess what? You are. You're all dying and you're in this process, but Antipas, you were faithful. 
You were just like Jesus. You were just like James before him. You were just like Stephen before him. Men and women that said, I'm going to follow Jesus even if it costs me everything because I know in him I gain even more. And so that's the context of the church. He says, guys, you held fast. Good job. You didn't give up even when life was hard. Well done, good and faithful servant. John commends the church for their faithful allegiance. He says, your throne is for Jesus and for Jesus alone. You've repented of these things and you've been faithful unto him. And so now he pivots in verse 14. He says, here's the good news. Now here's the not so good news. And I kind of wish we could just stop all of our sermons there. Guys, good job. Keep going. That's why last week was so fun, right? But God loves us enough to come to us and tap us on the shoulder and say, Drew, you're in my seat. So on one level, you've been faithful, but on another level, you've been a stumbling block. Here's what he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some of you there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, that they might practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was the issue of Ephesus two weeks ago, if you remember. Now, again, I'm going to encourage you. I put all these references on the screen so you'd go home and read them. But I want to throw these up here just for a moment. Here's Numbers 25. This is an Old Testament issue that's a New Testament issue that, guess what? It's a vintage race issue too. All of these are issues that we still fight and deal with today in the battle for the throne of our heart and the battle of our mind. While Israel lived in Shittim, now again, please read that carefully. I had someone first service misquote it. Read the whole word. Lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These then invited the people to sacrifice of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now, does God like this picture? No. What does God care the most about? His glory and he's most glorified and most satisfied, the throne of our hearts. They have put things on the throne of their hearts. They, the Israelites, who God loves. This is an allegiance issue. The text goes on in verse 31. It says this, Behold, these of Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. That's what we're looking at. The reality is this, is that when it comes to the throne of our heart, there is no neutral. There is no one-cheek faith. You're either a follower of Christ or you're sitting in a seat. There is no in-between. And so that's the context of as we pick up the text here. And when we see verse 14 and 15, here's what I want us to see, that there's a consistent attack from Satan. Did anyone notice in the video, he literally tells us that he has a pseudo degree from the University of Phoenix. Now, no shame to the University of Phoenix, but what does pseudo mean? Fake. Satan's attacks are not that creative. They're consistent, and they're always about the throne of your heart, and they're always about trusting and treasuring Jesus, and they're always about power and joy. They're always about where do you think you're going to find the greatest joy? And so as we look at the text today, please hear me. We're going to zoom in on two things in particular. Why? Because that's what the text does. The text talks about food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. But guess what? We're really talking about everything that creeps onto the throne of our heart. Why? Because the issue is about worship. That's what the issue is. When we see empire and kingdom come together, the question is, where do you stand? Where is your allegiance? And how do you know what your allegiance is? Based on what you put on the throne of your heart. Based on what makes you happy, based upon what causes you pain, what what, what grieves you. This is the throne of your heart. So as we look at worship, I think sometimes we use the word worship and it's not helpful for us because we say worship is singing songs at church on Sunday. Is that what worship is? No. The word worship means worth Ship, sending value. And so that's what we're doing in the throne of our heart. We're saying who alone is worthy of worship? Who alone deserves the seat, the primary seat, the seat of allegiance? And these Christians who are coming out of a way of the empire, still physically living in the empire, but residents of heaven, are dealing with this tension right now. 
And that's the church that Jesus writes to. He says this, church is the stumbling block. In the same way that this happened in the book of Numbers, it's happening today. In the same way that Balaam advised the king of Moab to seduce you with sexual and spiritual adultery, it's happening today. And it's happening today in our life as well. May we be on guard. May we recognize that Satan is consistent and persistent, but he's also predictable, amen? Like he doesn't have any new tricks. It's the same thing every time. Drew, you're awesome. Actually, not really. Drew rhymes with, and that's okay because God loves me as I am and where I am, but he loves me so much to not leave me there. I love that quote from Tim Keller. He loves me in my rubbish, but he loves me so much not to leave me there. And so the question to the early church is of allegiance. Do we recognize that our residency is in the kingdom of God? And this ellipsis brings this out. And so here's the first issue we're going to focus on, this food sacrifice to idols. Is God tolerant at all? Like, is God a tolerant God? Even that word makes some of you twitch. You're like, oh my gosh, is God a tolerant God? Well, on some level, yes. Why? Because I'm still breathing. No, seriously, he's a tolerant God because I'm still breathing because God cannot be around unrighteous and yet he loves me enough to be patient with me to say, Drew, are you gonna get off of my seat? Drew, are you gonna be faithful to repent? There is a, a reality about God and again, our fifth value is the church is we embrace inevitable tensions. So is God a tolerant God? Absolutely, on one level. He says, do not judge. He says, be my followers. He says, trust that I am the judge. Believe that my better is better. And so on some level, God's a tolerant God. Is God a tolerant God? no. Does God tolerate evil? Does he tolerate rape and the Holocaust? No. And there's coming a day when God will extinguish all evil from this world. That's the book we're reading, amen? That day's coming. And so is God a tolerant God? Yes. Is God an intolerant God? Yes. And what is he intolerant of? Any and everything that sits on the throne of our hearts. Idolatry. That's what he's intolerant of. And it's good that he is intolerant of that or he would no longer be God. But everything that we're talking about is actually worship. Paul says it this way in Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. I think when he says body, he means head, heart, hands, everything. The word is soma. It's your whole being. To present your whole being as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? worship. It's not your songs that you sing. It's who you are. It's the throne of your heart. That's what we're talking about here. It's everything for them and for us. The text goes on and it says this, do not be conformed into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. There is a curtain that has veiled us from the truth of the gospel, from the truth of the world, from the truth that we are dead in our sin, but God makes us alive. And by God's grace, we just sang the song. He rips down the veil, the veil in the synagogue and the veil over our minds. He rips down the veil and he says, guys, worship me. I'm the only one that's worthy of this seat. The only one, the only one, the only one. And so Paul says that in Romans and we see that here in this vision. But I have these things against you. You've settled for lesser joys. You become a stumbling block. Balaam came in then and now and even now today in the 21st century. And he's saying, it doesn't really matter what you think. Everyone can believe that. Tolerance in that context, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit will not tolerate because this is about a heart issue. This is about idolatry. And so here's the first issue. We're gonna look at two. Early Christians knew that eating food sacrificed to idols was not of the Lord. In fact, if you read about the early church in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, the first council was all about this truth and this reality. Why? Because you had people that were leaving their empire residency, becoming kingdom residents, and now there were issues. 
There were issues for them. They were leaving their former way of life and stepping into a new way of life with a new king and a new Lord of their heart. And so read Acts 15 or 21. Read 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. Don't miss this, that Paul allows for some sense of Christian liberty as idols to Christians were nothing. They weren't idols, but they were also forbidden as believers to eat food that was sacrificed in temples and to idols. In fact, this is what the text says in 1 Corinthians 10. No, I, Paul, imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Is that a good pastor or what? As your pastor, I'd like you to not participate with demons. Would you guys agree with me? And here's the deal. But it's just meat. I mean, it's just a ribeye. It's just a filet. It's just a goat, Paul. And Paul says, look, as Christians, we can eat whatever we want. Here's the problem. It's never just about the meat. You're like, yeah, but it's just a wooden idol. It's not a big deal. Like, did God create wood? Yes. So is wood good? Yes. And yet here's the deal. It's not about the wood. It's about the worship. Amen. It's about what you're putting on the throne of your heart. And so here's what he says. He says, guys, you may not eat food sacrificed to idols. That's what the text says in Revelation. In fact, their cultural context, the, the Roman Empire would have believed that if you went to a festival, let's say of Zeus, and you went to a festival of Zeus and they, they sacrificed the, the lamb and then they came together and they ate of the food sacrificed lamb, they believed that Zeus was there. I don't know about you, but when I invite people to like a party for the 49ers, the 49ers don't show up. I tried. I've invited them before. They just don't show up. Culturally, they believe that. They believe that when they had this party to this pagan God, that God himself showed up. In fact, they believe that food was often a sign of covenant, that when you broke bread together. Does this sound familiar? Because we believe that as Christians. Like, I totally want you to invite your friends to Easter. We're going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. Does that surprise anybody? That's what we're going to talk about. The hope of the world and how he changes everything. I really want you to invite your friends to Easter, but the best invite for the sake of the gospel is not to church on Sunday. Where is it? It's to dinner on Monday at your house. That's the best invite for the gospel. Not that they would come here and hear some guy sweat on stage and talk about whatever. They're gonna be so confused by the sermons on Sunday typically, but at your house for dinner, you know what they're gonna get? They're gonna get community. They're gonna get fellowship. They're gonna get covenant. Why? Because that's how God designed food because God is good, amen? Food is about covenant. That was true for us today, and it's true for them then. And so here's what Jesus says to the church. Guys, stop going to Zeus parties and eating food sacrificed to idols, but it's just about the meat. No, it's always about more than the meat. It's about worship. It's about who sits on the throne of your heart. It's about being a stumbling block to other Christians that are like, wait, how do I live in the kingdom and the empire together? It's about being a stumbling block to the yet to believe. It says, no, I don't eat that way. Remember Daniel last week? I don't eat that way. Why? Because God has something better for me. So I'm not going to settle for less. I'm not going to spend my life on a rubber arm. I'm going to invest in the kingdom of God. Now we'll get there in a sec about what does that look like for us. But as your pastor, please hear me. I don't want you to be a part of demons. Pay attention. Now here's the point of the text though. You're like, well, this is good. I've never been invited to a Zeus party. So I guess I'm all right. Who's been invited to a Zeus party lately, right? Oh, that was great. Someone actually raised their hand. I wasn't expecting that. Let me go back to the text. I have not. And so we're like, hey, that's cool. That doesn't affect me. And my fear is that, A, it's not true, that there's all sorts of idols being pushed on you every second of your life. It's the things that you worship, the things that you ascribe value to. So be on guard. The second thing is my fear is that same school of thought travels into this next word where he says, do not eat food sacrificed to idols and do not practice sexual immorality. And I think more often than not, we read this text and we're like, oh, well, that's good. He's clearly talking about somebody else. 
Because I don't struggle with sexual morality. Now, can I just be really clear as your pastor? The stats would tell us that there's essentially almost nobody in this room that could actually say that. And yet we live in a world where we're like, yeah, yeah, but he's talking about somebody else. No church, he's talking about us. In fact, the odds are that everyone, only once in my life has someone told me, I've never, never, never struggled with sexual morality and I believe them. Most of the time someone tells me that, I think they're full of it, right? But here's the truth of the matter. Sexual immorality, here's my definition, anything that God did not design for his glory and for your good. It's that simple. Because we want to say, well, what is sexual immorality? It's very simple. It's what you do in your head, it's what you do in your heart, and it's what you do with your hands. And I believe, according to statistics and my experience as a pastor with hundreds and thousands of people over the last 20 years, that everyone has walked into this room with some sort of past and maybe even present reality of sexual immorality. So let's pay attention here. What I mean is with your head, your thought life. We call that, that lust. Or your heart, your fantasy life, your affections, pornography. Or maybe you've acted out on all those things and we call that hands. We'd call that adultery or affairs. Sexual immorality is anything that is not by God's design for sex. Now, did God design sex? Yes. What does God say about all of his creation and his design? That it is what? Good. God could have designed you and I to make babies by high-fiving our wives. That'd be a bummer. Amen? By God's grace and for his glory, I do believe God designed sex for his glory and for our good in his context and in his design. Outside of his design, that's what we would call sexual immorality. Pornography, lust, affairs, any and everything that is not the way that God designed us to experience sex for his glory and for our good. And you would say, yeah, 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 but it's just sex. It's just a physical act. Did we not just read Romans? It's never just a physical act. There's always a spiritual, there's always an emotional. Why? Because in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that word soma doesn't just mean your physical act, it means your spiritual bodies, worship, ascribing value. That we must pay attention. You're like, yeah, but my pornography doesn't affect anybody. It does. You're feeding and fostering a service industry of men and women that are being sold and literally exchanged for, again, a plastic arm, for something that doesn't matter. And so again, what we see here is Jesus show up to the church and he says, guys, stop hanging out with demons. Pay attention to the throne of your heart. You're gonna live in a world that says, no, 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 you define sex however you want. God is the one that defines it because God is the one that designed it, amen? Four of you, I'll take it, that's fine. Jesus had 11, so I'll take four. He's the one that gets to define it because he's the one that designed it. And so we go to him, we surrender the throne of our hearts. We say, God, I want to repent of idolatry. That even includes definitions that we would not eat a food sacrifice to idols, that we would not practice sexual immorality and pay attention. It's too easy for you to say, well, I'm glad so-and-so is hearing this sermon and miss what the spirit has for you in it as well. Here's what he says to people who are settling for less. He says this, he says, repent. He says, Repent. He says, guys, look at the throne of your heart and, and repent and recognize, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a big deal to Jesus. This is a big deal to him. He's not talking about the second coming. This is like, if you don't knock it off right now, I'm going to come back before the second coming because the battle for your mind is worth it. That's what he says. I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna do war against the school of thought, of religiosity, of empire worship, of cultic worship. Remember, he's talking in a Roman culture where literally these people are coming out of literally orgies to worship the emperor. This is their context. 
And they're leaving this and they're stepping into the kingdom and saying, well, now what am I supposed to do? What parties do I go to? What does my sexual life look like? The other day, I, I drove my, my friend's car. Now, I drive an 04 pickup. I love it. I upgraded from an 05 because now I have automatic windows. It's beautiful. So I drive an 04 pickup. I don't see my gas mileage. I, I hail from Southern California in SoCal. If you don't drive aggressively, you die. That's how it works. And so coming to Northern California now where there's like one road in our town, that's what it feels like. There's two. There's Green Valley, the freeway, and EDH Boulevard, and now Silva. We're growing, right? And so I still drive pretty aggressively. I'm sorry. I don't have a VG bumper sticker. It's on purpose. It's for the glory of God, right? <laughs> and so I drive aggressively because in my DNA, if I don't drive that way, then I die. I'm coming out of the empire into God's country. We call that San Francisco giant land, right? Like leaving the Dodgers, stepping into newness of life. And now as I do that, pay attention. I, I drove my friend's car the other day. It's a much newer car. It's like a 2012. And there's this thing on the dashboard and it shows me my gas mileage. It shows me when I drive aggressively what happens to my gas mileage. And it shows me when I just coast, which is all I did all week. I just coasted on the hills. So I could actually not pay $6 a gallon because that is evil. Somebody say amen. amen. Guys, Jesus is showing up and saying, there's a cost to you living outside of my way. There's a cost to you. And I've given you a dashboard where you can start to see. You can start to see what happens when you settle for sexual immorality. You can start to see what happens when you eat at Zeus's parties and everything in between. Whenever anything comes on the throne of your heart, you can see it. And it's not good for you. And I love you enough as a good father to send my son and put the spirit and tap you on the shoulder and say, Drew, you're in my seat. Now again, we've all been in his seat. Amen? What's he tell us to do? Repent. Repent. Repent, and I will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. I will be faithful and just not to define you by your old way of life, but to define you in a new way. Here's what he says. Be faithful to repent. The word repentance, where he keeps saying over and over again, it's a compound word of these two words, meta, to come alongside, noetu, to work on one's mind and thinking, to change your mind to recognize you don't live in Southern California anymore. You're not a resident of the empire. You're a resident of the kingdom. You must think differently so that you might live differently. Does that make sense? If not, send me an email, jens at vintagegrace.org, and I'd love to help you out later this week. He says, repent, and if you do, he who has an ear, let him hear. Guys, are you hearing? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. Three things to the one who conquers. Here's the good news. We are not conquering because of what we've done. We're conquering because of what he's done for us. Somebody say amen. amen. Not about what we've done, but about what he's done for us. To those of you who are like me, who are like them, to the one who conquers, I will give you the hidden manna. Go read Exodus 16. The Israelites are wandering in the desert, and what shows up? Food. Why? Because God's better is always better. They don't earn the food. They don't produce the food. It just shows up. That's what we call grace, unmerited favor. Go read Joshua chapter five, verse 12. Go read John chapter six, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the what? The bread of life. So you would never hunger again. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are overwhelmed by your sin, overwhelmed by your sexual immorality, overwhelmed by any and everything you put on the throne of your heart, and I'll give you food so that you're never hungry again. I will provide. Here's the second thing he gives us. He gives us a white stone. He says, I will give him a white stone with a, a new name. The white stone were two different ways in the cultural context that the white stone would show up. Here's the first one. After a, a battle of gladiators, the winner would get a white stone. The loser, he was dead. He didn't need a stone. You know what I mean? Like, but the winner got a white stone. Here's what the white stone represented. It got you into the banquet for the, the victors. 
Guys, at the end of your life, if you trust and treasure Jesus, you get a white stone. Not because of what you've done, but because he fights our battles for us. I'm gonna give you a white stone. The second reason you would get a white stone is at a jury when they were voting for acquittal or actually guilty. Here was what would happen. They would cast a white stone to say, not guilty. Jesus gives you a white stone. Guys, I don't know about your past sin, the Zeus's in your life, your sexuality and everything in between. Jesus offers you right now a white stone. You just gotta take it. You gotta repent and you gotta believe. He says to those of you who are conquerors, I will give you hidden manna and I will give you a white stone. On June 12th, we're gonna have a wedding at Vintage Grace. It's gonna be preparing for the wedding of the bride because in Revelation, that's what's coming in chapter 19. And so again, circle that date and celebrate with us that we get a white stone. Here's the third thing. On that white stone, we get a new name written. God has a habit of this. Have you noticed that if you've read his book? He has a habit of taking our old self, saving us from that and inviting us into a new identity. Jacob becomes Israel, Abram, Abraham, and Simon, Peter, a name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. He loves you, he's changed you, and he's in the process with you of making you more like him. And so, so here's the implications. There's so much stuff in the text today. There's so many things for us to just sit on, so many things to talk about at our life group. Here's the reality. I actually do believe that this entire book is a book on discipleship. That's what it is. Being faithful to the end, that's what discipleship is. Being faithful and recognizing that we live in a world that is settling for lesser joys, that is settling for idols all the time. And Jesus will not tolerate it. He loves us enough to invite us into it. And discipleship is the three great relationships. Our one is deepening with God. Our, our two is life change other believers. And our three is engaging with the yet to believe. Church, we exist to be disciples that make disciples. But we also live in a world of philipsis where our discipleship is gonna be challenged, where our allegiance is gonna be challenged, where the question of who sits on the throne of your heart matters. And so as disciples, three things, here's the first one, thinking rightly matters. Your head, your heart, and your hands, not one of them, all of them. We must think rightly so that we feel rightly, so that we actually do what we feel. We can't disconnect any one of those together. They've all got to be together because that's what a disciple is, someone who loves God with all of your head, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, with everything, with your mind, with your time, with your treasure, with your talent, we must think rightly. And I do believe that we are living in a world where truth is under assault. And the truth is Jesus. Where we're stepping into spaces and places today that I don't know if we ever have before, where thinking like Christ is gonna quickly become unpopular. Because we're gonna be said that God doesn't tolerate. Here's the truth. He tolerates us, that's why we're still here. And he loves you enough to invite you in for more. It doesn't cast you away, but thinking rightly matters. And if we don't, there's gonna be this, this blanket that's guarding our head and our heart and our eyes, and we're not gonna think rightly. And so we have to get back to thinking rightly. It's why the book matters so much. It's why I've committed you as your pastor to not give you my opinions on things instead to say, can we just faithfully follow Jesus? We're not very good at that. Let's start there. Let's go there on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Let's go to our head. I, I read this quote from Tim Keller this last week. I thought it was fascinating. He said this, when people tell me that they once used to be thinking, believing Christians, but now they've rejected it all, I often ask them after stopping and pausing for a long time to be a good listener. That's a really important part of the quote. After listening to their whole story, now they've told me that they used to be a believing Christian, but now they've rejected it all. Then I asked them, why did they originally believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And how now have they decided that he didn't actually do that? They stop and they say, huh, that's a really good question. I don't know. 
because they've separated their head and their heart and their hands. They haven't stopped thinking that there is a God. They haven't stopped thinking that there is sin. They haven't stopped thinking that there is separation. They've just separated themselves from having to think. Why? Because the curtain's thick, is it not? We start to feel things that aren't real because we've invested our time, our treasure, and our talent into things that are fake. Satan has distracted us from what matters most, which is thinking rightly about God. That's what changes our heart, and that's what changes our hands. So that's the first thing. Think rightly. Talk about this in your life group. Talk about this with your friends. Let's commit to being Christians that think because here's the truth. Pergamum is thinking and they're lying and they're deceiving us to not trust and treasure. Here's the second one. Engage with the world. Don't, don't miss this. Jesus ate with sinners. He didn't eat food sacrificed to idols, but he ate with sinners. So much so that when the Jews were mad at Jesus, what's one of their big accusations? He's a friend of, how did they know he was a friend? Because he ate with them because he went to the tax collector's house, because he went to the woman caught in adultery. He pursued sinners. Is that good news? If you're a sinner, it is. Amen. So pay attention, church. Be engaged with the world. Way too often I'm seeing Christians fight the world. Jesus loves the world. Don't fight the things that Jesus loves. We don't fight with the world. We fight for the world. Amen. He puts us here. He leaves us here. He doesn't just take us out of it. He leaves us. His plan is that we would experience the lipsis because through that, there'd be kingdom movement opportunities. He ate with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He didn't laugh at them. Y'all laughed at those guys where they were deceived. That's mean. I laughed too. We laugh at them. We call them names. We say, you're dumb. Why would you believe that? Why would you think that there's an ice cube on your hand? Can't you see it's fake? No, no, they actually can't. They're deceived, just like you and me at times. Christians, we must be the most patient, loving, grace-filled people that this world ever has to offer. We must answer questions for people when they ask them and only when they ask them. If we go to tell someone, you're so dumb, you're so self-deceived, they're already deceived. They don't know that. We pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would do a work that we can't do, that he would pull the curtain back that he would allow us to see who he is and who we are. I don't know about you, but Drew rhymes with who. That's not like some cute phrase. That's just true. That's three in a row. Do you see that? That's true. Which means that my theology allows my tone and my timing of conversations to be grace-filled and spirit-led. So I don't answer questions for people that they're not asking, but church, please hear me. Can we live in such a way that they ask you the question? because they're looking for their joy. They're looking for happiness. They're trying the parchment paper. They're trying the sexual gods. You must remember, they're coming out of sexual orgies. That's what they're coming out of in their town, and by the way, in our town too. They're looking for joy in any way that they think will make them happy. You have the theology. May our tone and our timing match that this week, I pray. May we fight for the world. May we be people that when asked, remove the curtain and may the spirit of God speak to us and through us. And here's the third thing. For that to happen, we must always go back to the cross. In five of these seven churches, Jesus tells us to repent and then he reminds us, but you can be more than a conqueror. How are you more than a conqueror? Through his life and through his death. I wanna invite you to grab these communion elements today. I'm not going to have you take them right now. If you don't love Jesus yet, that's okay. I'm thrilled that you're here. Everything I said probably made no sense to you. Ask your friend who invited you, what was that sweaty guy talking about? Like engage with them. Have a coffee date. Break bread. We're going to break bread, which is a symbol of our Savior's life. 
We're going to sing a song first before we do, because in Jesus's life and his death, I think the gospel gives us three things. We go back to the cross. First, it gives us hope in a broken world. Does anyone else know that the world is dark? Who else needs hope? Jesus wins. You're welcome. That's it. That's it right here. That's what you're holding. A reminder of the hope of the world. You also find identity. You find identity in the fact that everyone in the world is looking for who am I? Jesus tells you, you are son or daughter of the one true king. You are loved in your brokenness as you are and where you are. And he loves you so much to not leave you there. You find identity in the history of his people, in the history of his love. You find identity in his presence and in the present day that he has not left you or forsaken you, that he has come towards you. And you find identity in the future that you win because he's won. You don't win because of what you've done. You find acquittal for sin. You recognize that you deserve death and separation. But God, who's rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, he gave his son for you, who lived the perfect life that you could never live, and he died the heinous death that you deserve to die so that you could be called son, daughter of the one true king. That Jesus paid it all, and that he gives you a white stone. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.